the most useful insights actually come from that generative research as opposed to just checking off boxes and building some dashboard, right? So I wanted to empower my analysts with providing everyone the capacity and kind of the incentive to uh, be proactive about their thinking. I wouldn't say it's like necessarily a cross-functional review, it's more so just the way we work where, you know, nothing happens without looking at data. Welcome to The Right Track, a podcast for people building data cultures. We will hear from leaders in engineering, product, and data as they share their frustrating and inspiring stories on building the best products for their customers by mastering outcome-driven development, self-serve analytics, and great data cultures. I am Stefania Olafsdottir, CEO and co-founder of AVO, the analytics governance platform, changing how developers, product managers, and data scientists collaborate to plan, track, and govern their product analytics. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. In this episode, I spoke with Elena Djechkova. Elena is Senior Manager of Product Analytics at Peloton. She has a background in track and field before moving over to product management and then product analytics. She built up the product analytics function at Peloton and now leads a team of highly skilled product analysts who work cross-functionally with the product teams at Peloton. Elena's team at Peloton has developed an impressive data culture. They strive for self-serve analytics, which of course means so much more than the analytics tools that they use. It also means creating and evangelizing solid analytics frameworks, maintaining routines, and fostering cross-functional collaboration, anywhere from planning analytics to reviewing outcomes. Listen in for Elena's actionable wisdom on building data culture. Welcome to the right track, Elena. Great to have you here. Yeah, thank you. I'm super happy to be here. It's my second podcast recording ever, so definitely a little nervous, but also excited. Yay, you have absolutely nothing to be worried about because I know you have a really good story to tell us. To kick things off, could you quickly provide us with an intro? Tell us a little bit who you are, what you do, and how you got there. Yeah, uh, my name is Elena Djechkova. I am currently a senior manager of product analytics at Peloton. I lead the product analytics function in the company and I've built it uh, from ground up. So that's my proud moment. But uh, outside of that, I am a huge track and field fan. And that was my career for many years before I switched to analytics or product analytics. And um, I also have a two-year-old. He is my whole life. So I'm also a mommy. So that's me. <laughs> I love it. So how did you go from being in track and field to being in product analytics? Yeah, it's a bit of a long story. Um, my educational background is in economics or mathematical methods and economics. So I sort of always been in data field uh, to some extent with more academic focus. But I did all my research or my thesis work in sports because track and field has been such a big passion for me as a spectator. And I did some track in college as well. Um, so I spent many years after I graduated working to make the sport more popular, make it more fun, more engaging. Um, you know, I did all sorts of things from communications to event organization, sponsorship sales, athlete uh, relations, um, all sorts of stuff. But um, I then moved to the U.S. Uh, to pursue uh, sports further um, figure out how to do it the Western way, uh, I guess. Uh, but it just so happened that I ended up, um, I started off in the U.S. also in sports and uh, sponsorship ROI measurement at the company called Repucon that got acquired by Nielsen later. Um, and from there, I sort of transitioned to more general analytics and research. And then from there to product analytics, just through, you know, part of it was just luck and kind of some internal reorgs that just opened up new opportunities for me and gave me chances to work with product team and even discover what the product management was in general. So, But at some point, I felt a need to reconnect with my passion, which is going back to, you know, running fitness industry. And at that time, Peloton announced the creation of the running content and um, launch of the Tread, a relaunch of their mobile app and all that fun stuff where I felt like with my experience in running, I could bring, you know, something to the table there. And that um, encouraged me to join the company. 
at that time I was already in product analytics or in product management more broadly. So it felt like a perfect fit, you know, continuing to do what I love, which is data, and also being in the industry I love, which is, you know, fitness and sport. I love that story. I recently also interviewed Claire Armstrong at Fender, and it's a sort of similar story for her. She had a really strong passion for the music industry and people on their music journey. And then she had a background in sort of UX and merged those into. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that's like a theme for particularly, I guess, when people are building digital products, mm-hmm. they already have a passion for what they are serving their users. And then, you know, maybe especially when you're going into product analytics, you know, really wanting to tie what you already know with facts and see how that is and how that can be attributed to the product that you're building. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a big help being able to relate to the user as well and just relating to the mission, understand what you bring into the table. I think that also can be dangerous, uh, you know, especially in analytics or research fields when you try to do me search. <laughs> and, you know, it's important to always <laughs> me search. <laughs> yeah, to check yourself that, hey, you know, you are probably yourself are a specific user persona as a user of the product, but you don't represent the entire population. So, you know, it's good to have some like intuition, but, you know, making sure that you're not just trying to validate your own viewpoint or your own feelings as a user when you're looking at the data. (laughs) That is a really strong point. How do you keep yourself in check there? Yeah, I think I just make a point of thinking about it when I'm using the product and I notice something that maybe doesn't feel good for me. I always try to uh, be like, hey, you know, you are that one person and you know more about the product than other folks. So you use it in a specific way. And even as a user, I'm probably not representative of more general Peloton user base since I've been like, I've ran track in college and there's specific like training method that I'm uh, on board with. I'm very metrics driven, um, you know, and I understand that the majority of our user base probably aren't quite as, you know, metrics driven and kind of training plan and PR driven, but more so just trying to have fun. Yeah. And I think also having an experience where, you know, I had an intuition about something and then I checked it in the data and it didn't feel like, you know, my, (laughs) my opinion was representative and just like getting some of those cases under my belt to, you know, validate the point that, Hey, you're not, you can't speak for the user base, just, you know, check your intuition. <laughs> yeah, that is really, this is bringing up sort of a couple of questions. I mean, it's also a fun addition to your backstory that you used to be a very metrics driven athlete. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you are now helping other people use a fantastic product and become more metrics driven. And you are also helping product teams become more (laughs) metrics driven in building those products. Um, So that's really interesting. But in addition to wanting to check yourself and being aware that you are not the user base, the entire user base, do you also feel like a missionary um, purpose that you know that this has helped you a lot and you would like to help other people maybe become more metrics driven? Yeah, I think... The general concept of being more metrics driven is a good one, but I don't think that being driven by metrics in a narrow sense of, you know, here's what my output is, here's what my pace is. I don't really think that's for everyone. I think for more people, the metrics are more intangible, such as, I guess, how good am I feeling, (laughs) you know, on a scale of one to 10, maybe something that isn't in the app, but maybe something that's in my head, you know, that's also a metric. And I think that's ultimately more important than you know, metrics such as your output in a a, uh, ride or your pace in a run. We feel differently, no different days. We didn't need different things on different days. So it's more so that, you know, intangible feeling within yourself after you complete the workout, like, how do you feel? Do you feel like you've achieved, you know, the purpose, which on some days could be, hey, I'm really maybe very overwhelmed and I needed this ride to just kind of clear my head and maybe I wasn't going for a personal record. But then on other days, maybe I was, you know, so it's kind of giving our users a flexibility to find the right content and the right features for the purpose that they have for a specific day. Because ultimately Peloton isn't about, you know, weight loss. It's not about necessarily like health improvement per se, but it's more about that empowerment and convenience, empowerment and community. So it's more more of those intangible metrics. <laughs> That's a really beautiful take on it. I love that. Uh, Peloton and the Peloton users are really lucky to have you on board, <laughs> I have to say. Um, to sort of uh, dive a little bit into the data culture 
you know, we here on the right track, we are really passionate about helping people build good data cultures. To kick us off into that segment, can you share with us an inspiring data story? Yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted to share a story that isn't fully my story. You know, my colleagues, they were taught on before me, they kind of kickstarted that. But ultimately, data helped create some of the most important community features that we have on the platform right now, which is the Here Now leaderboard and the sessions feature. Initially, we only had all-time leaderboard, and that was a part of, you know, the main value proposition at Peloton that you're when you're doing a class, you don't feel alone because in the leaderboard, you see everyone who has done the the same class, you know, all time, and you can compare your output to other people's, um, see how you stack, maybe compete if that compels you. And at some point, you know, obviously when our user base was smaller, there was more kind of fragmentation of different users would pick different classes. There wasn't as much kind of, you know, users working out at the same time. But at some point, one of our product leaders said like, hey, let's look at the data and see if, you know, at the given point in time, there is an overlap of users doing the same class. And when we ran the numbers, we did see that at that point, you know, in most popular times of the day, we saw a significant overlap where there was would be a same class that multiple people would be doing at the same time. There would be overlapping by at least a little bit. So with that, we said, hey, why would don't we make our leaderboard more engaging in a sense that you you still can't see everyone who've done this class, you know, all time, but you would also be able to switch to the here now leaderboard where you would actually see people who are doing the same class right there at the same point in time. And that way you also get a way to interact with them. So you can send them high fives, they can send you high fives. So it makes it even more like, you know, making maybe the studio experience a bit more uh, for folks who are really, you for, for whom it's really important. So that's how here now was born. And then as our user base continued growing uh, throughout the last couple of years, at some point we decided to look at uh, whether people are even starting the class, not just overlapping maybe by a few minutes, uh, but even starting the same class at the same time. Uh, so we ran the numbers again. And once again, we saw that uh, the most popular times of the day, it was indeed the case that there was, you know, a decent amount of people starting a class within the same, you know, couple of minutes, which means that they wouldn't be able to just interact in class but they can also actually compete, you know, on here now leaderboard, sometimes there'll be people, you know, you just start in a class, they're already almost finished. So you can't really compete like that. But if you're starting at the same time that you can also compete. Um, so we recently launched the sessions feature where it's similar to video gaming concept where everyone, you know, it starts every five minutes. So you sit in the lobby until that start time. And then you start at the same exact second as a few more people, you know, it can be five, it can be a hundred, it can be more depending on the class and the time of the day and then you start all together you get that really small leaderboard really that you know feeling that you're all in it together and then you know a lot of people like that for the competition aspect a lot of people like it for the ease of kind of planning to ride with friends because you know that you're kind of starting at the same exact time so two of our most important community features were powered by you know intuition with the data <laughs> that's amazing i love that and so I'm curious to understand a little bit more about how this was discovered and how it came about. And it sounds like someone was looking at time of day, spike usages and things like that. Um, can you share a little bit about like how the discovery happened? What type of role was involved in that discovery and sort of who was collaborating and things like that? Yeah, uh, the initial here now discovery happened before I joined. So I only know anecdotally, uh, but the product managers that were there, uh, before I joined the company were uh, extremely data-driven as well. Even before that, they had a, you know, a specific product analytics faction. They had a pretty good tracking setup. They had some self-service tools. Uh, so they were actively looking at the data. And similarly, they were, you know, constantly talking to the users to kind of gauge, you know, what the gaps were, what the, you know, opportunities were to add to the user experience. So it was mostly that, you know, hearing from the users of what kind of was missing, um, you know, seeing that users wanted a bit more interaction and stronger community bonds. So that was kind of born out of that where, you know, the product managers were able to operate with the data, you know, already had tracking in place of who was uh, doing workouts at what point in time. So, and then for the sessions, it was a similar thing. You know, the community part is a part of our mission. Um, so there is, you know, dedicated attention uh, that people pay to that area of experience at all times. There is continuous research happening, continuous strategy refinement. So it's sort of the same concept where, you know, we're 
constantly talking to users and figuring out where are the opportunities, what is missing, you know, how the social dynamics change on the platform with the increase in the user-based growth, right? So it was kind of the same thing where folks were starting to say, hey, even the here now leaderboard has now become really large. So if I'm writing with my friends, sometimes it's hard to even mm-hmm. find them on the leaderboard because I have to scroll. <laughs> there are so many people, yeah. you know. So um, with that, we kind of tried to think, you know, hey, what are the possible solutions for that use case, for that user problem? And more purposefully looking at the data to get the kind of the sense of the direction that we might go. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. So a uh, couple of points that sort of, Uh, I think are interesting here. Number one is it's a really good point that before even you joined and started building up the product analytics division of the company, the product managers were already data driven. So that's one part that I'd like to ask you a little bit about. And then the other, just get a little bit of further insights into how this Crocs functional data review group has developed over time. But starting with that, sort of with the first point, how much of an impact do you think it has had on Peloton's sort of data functions and the product analytics functions that the product leaders were already data-driven before you started the product analytics section of the company? Yeah, I think that was huge ultimately because the habit of incorporating data into your decision-making is something that maybe it doesn't come naturally, you know, to everyone, right? So having that, when I came on board, I didn't have to convince the product managers at least that, hey, you know, the data is important. Let's look at the data. But there was already, you know, a bit of a habit around that, a bit of a, even kind of including that in hiring process and, you know, talent review process that, hey, product manager needs to know how to interpret data, needs to know how to use data, how to incorporate it. So I think that was that was huge because ultimately, you know, I still had to prove, you know, the worth of the product analytics as a separate function as opposed to, hey, let's just build the self-service tools and PMs will do it themselves which I think is fine on some stage, right? But obviously that would hit some complexity limits where, you know, some analysis would really benefit from having someone with, you know, the great depth of skill in data science and statistics. You know, it was already, it was a pretty smooth sailing for me in terms of the engineering knowing, you know, that implemented tracking is important, the product managers knowing that looking at data is important, already having some infrastructure in place around that. Yeah, I think that was great for me. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, this is great. I'm also curious to hear a little bit more about, because I mean, this is a really great way of doing things basically for the important things, for the important features and the important missions of the product and the product teams to have these cross-functional review groups, as you call them, that that were there to discover the session analysis um, or sort of discover the data that drove the session feature. Can you talk a little bit about how that cross-functional group review process has evolved? How often does it occur and how often did it used to occur? Who sits in on it and things like that? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's like necessarily a cross-functional review. It's more so just the way we work uh, where, you know, nothing happens without looking at data at this point. Uh, We have dedicated work streams around uh, various areas of experience or product lines that um, have, you know, engineering representation, product management, product analytics and design. Design also includes user research in that case. So um, it is pretty common for before uh, kind of solutioning on a specific user problem to have uh, both analysis if, you know, we have some data, some existing user interaction data that can power some insights, which is not always the case because, you know, a lot of the product development comes uh, happens for something that's completely new. Uh, so we might not have necessarily quantitative data to uh, help with that decision. But if it does, you know, looking at the data um, from our existing user base, then similarly leveraging user research for uh, qualitative insights, which can be, you know, focus groups, can be uh, concept tests, can be surveys. Uh, And then similarly, after something has launched, you know, uh, having some sort of a checkpoint for um, the dashboard review, how things are performing, how our hypotheses, whether our hypotheses are confirmed or not, and similarly incorporating qualitative insights into that as well to gauge kind of more of a user satisfaction, which is an important layer on top of just pure usage data. Um, and then for bigger initiatives, we also have strategy team, we also have consumer insights team that can do larger scale studies uh, with more of a business focus um, 
also, you know, qualitative, quantitative surveys and things like that. Amazing. Yeah, this is super helpful. And I'm assuming this is also very inspiring to a bunch of different people. Um, I hope this is inspiring some of our audience here. I definitely want to touch on this a little bit also later in the episode. But before we do, can you also kick us off with a frustrating data story? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, it's going to be not Peloton related at all, uh, but one of my previous companies that I worked in, um, in the audience measurement industry, um, we were going to launch uh, audience measurement product in several international markets in partnership with another company where, you know, we provided some methodological pieces. They provided some of the first party data, which, you know, married together uh, would provide a kind of a cross platform measurement figures for, you know, a set of websites, uh, basically for our B2B. It's a B2B model, so it's not for end users, but for business clients. And um, as we were about to launch, uh, we were kind of buttoning up the methodological piece and, We've discovered very close to launch, unfortunately, that there was an artifact of international markets having, some of them had lower population than the US and the panel data, especially in specific age, gender groups was so low, you know, the audience shares were so low that when extrapolated, it just gave weird data where the audience shares across age gender brackets did not sum up to 100, but they actually were above 100. <laughs> and that was... Uh, that was not fun discovery with, you know, a week or a couple of weeks before launch. Um, I think we also made a mistake of not being very transparent with our partner at first and kind of assuming that, hey, you know, we understand that's a kind of a methodological blip, but there's not much we can do about it because the population surveys happen, you know, every year, every five years in some markets. So it's not that we can just go ahead and do a new one right away in two weeks. Uh, so we will assume that the partner would be either won't notice it or kind of would be okay with it, which was definitely a wrong assumption. So it was definitely a very stressful launch, but, you know, it, it happened with some methodology tuning and some model tuning. We had some brilliant data scientists and statisticians on the team, but it was definitely an artifact of trying to kind of rush something uh, to hit some contractual obligations. Yeah, B2B is a whole different beast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is a case where you were working with an external partner on delivering data. And mm -hmm. yeah, that's really interesting. And it is actually an interesting input into a later discussion on the podcast on sort of how does the data team within Peloton or within organizations um, that you've seen work with the stakeholders? Because you do definitely often see, or I've seen it tons of times, and so many people talk about that, that data sort of almost is a silo. So what you were describing right there is something that could so easily happen when the collaboration and the partnership doesn't really feel tight and the relationships haven't been built. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's great. So on that frustration note, but, you know, building data cultures is a lot around building trust, uh, data trust, data literacy, data accessibility, and things like that. Uh, and we will touch on a little bit later, like how, what does it mean when people say, I don't trust this data? But before we go into that, what would you say is, you know, the most common way that analytics break? Yeah, um, I don't mean to deflect that question, but I think my team has been pretty good about doing thorough testing before something goes into production. So I would say in production, our data is pretty good. I wouldn't say it's Yay. broken much, but we definitely do catch, um, you know, a lot of small inconsistencies during the testing process. And um, a lot of it is as simple as, you know, double spacing instead of single spacing or casing is off or data type is, you know, float instead of an integer. So, you know, a lot of that, uh, which is definitely very annoying. Uh, it doesn't make the data completely broken. It's still workable, right? But it definitely causes a lot of discomfort. If it were to go into production, it causes a lot of discomfort and self-service tools, a lot of, you know, additional, having to have additional data cleaning scripts. Uh, so it's, you know, creating a lot of busy work. And similarly, in, even in development process, it creates a lot of back and forth, you know, testing, edits, back to testing uh, that can be avoided, right? So it's kind of, annoying, but ultimately not the end of the world. Um, so yeah, I would say that those are the things that I see the most often, just kind of those little inconsistencies. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so you now have these 
you know, thorough processes for queuing the data. And I've often heard people talk about the classic UAT, user acceptance <laughs> um, testing for analytics events. And that's something that I don't think people start building unless they see the need to do it. And obviously, it sounds like you are already catching some of these issues in QA, mm-hmm. but there was a reason why you started doing it. Um, can you talk a little bit about like how that happened? How did you develop those QA processes and why? And Yeah, definitely. I think it's really hard to rely on engineers and kind of rightfully hard. I wouldn't say it's the no, no negative connotation uh, just because, you know, engineers aren't the end users of the data to the same extent as a product analyst or a product manager would be. So, you know, we're just having more platforms, um, you know, where, when we had just the bike, right, it was one engineering team implementing everything. Um, so it was like very consistent. But as we started growing bigger and we added, you know, mobile apps and Tread and TV apps and web app. And, you know, we tried to implement everything in a way that cross-platform analysis are possible because a lot of the features live in multiple apps at the same time. So we have to be able to look at the user's entire journey. Um, so uh, that's what kind of spurred the notion of, hey, we need to have some tighter taxonomy principles and tighter quality checks in place so that we're not in a situation where, you know, the same exact interaction on different platforms is captured with an event that's like has slightly different naming, you know, one, maybe some event properties are lowercase or uppercase, maybe here's float and here's integer because, you know, accent date in the self-service tool, you would very easily see that it just looks like a mess. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's going to create a lot of annoyances for folks um, down the line. So we kind of established that as a principle early on that, hey, we're going to redo our taxonomy um, in a way that kind of establishes the core principles for how we want to name events, how we want to deal with casing um, and uh, property value data types and things like that, kind of put it on paper. And we're going to establish a process around, you know, who creates the design, who signs off on it, uh, who writes the tickets, um, and then who tests the tickets. And I think we've tried, you know, having QA team uh, be final sign-off PMs in some cases, engineers in some cases, but uh, we found that the analytics team is the best equipped to do so because we will be the ones who would be doing the analysis, right? So we already have kind of in mind how we're going to use that data. So we have a vision of how it should look. And then similarly, we accumulate while doing it, we accumulate experience for edge cases where we can already kind of foresee that, hey, if I test that interaction from this specific menu, you know, in the past, maybe it wasn't ideal. So let me try that again. So I just feel like we're we're doing the most thorough job, you know, and I think it's by design. I don't necessarily think it's wrong. That said, I do think that there is definitely some space in the in the analytics industry to figure out uh, more automated uh, protocols for testing as well, because one thing is you're still relying on kind of a human call of, you know, how to test and what to test, but we can't, you know, know everything that could break. You know, there can be regressions where you're testing, you're UATing the new feature, but then you don't notice that it affected some existing features tracking implementation. So I think there's definitely space for having that another layer of QA that is sim- more similar to general software QA, you know, unit tests and stuff like that. So yeah, it would be nice to have all of that in place. Exactly. I mean, it's really interesting to see how just the product development industry has evolved. It's been, you know, maybe 20 years since it became fairly normal to not have waterfall product development, right? Where you just, the developers would receive design specs and they were supposed to implement it. And moving that into being more of like a cross-functional collaboration into shipping your product. And I feel like, and that's become normal and mainstream now in the last five years. I think most, you know, product and development teams, they won't accept anything other than that. And I feel like in the last five years, analytics has more and more become also part of this. You know, maybe five years ago, five to 10 years ago, analytics used to be a complete waterfall thing. And, you know, the design of the analytics would happen in that data silo team and just like the developers would receive specs. And now more and more we're seeing where analytics has sort of also become more a part of the entire product release journey. Is that similar to what you've seen also? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I do see a lot of value in that embedded model where, you know, product analysts are kind of has multiple touch points. That's one of the reasons why our team, you know, sits under product uh, management vertical as opposed to in a central data team because we feel like we need that visibility and we need that connection kind of being embedded throughout the product development cycle, you know, from mediation, like I said, you know, hey, let's validate some of the hypotheses around user problems with the data. Let's validate some of the solutions. Then analysts would also work on kind of provide an input for OKR or KPI setting uh, before even the development starts, then analyst needs visibility into the design, I guess, at least at the design handoff stage so they can, they understand the designer's thinking around, you know, how that specific uh, design answers the user problem. Are there any hypotheses around some user flows that might be questionable or that are risky so that we can incorporate that into tracking, making sure we can measure that, or maybe we can suggest an approach, a release approach, maybe a specific, you know, test experiment as opposed to um, a wide rollout. And similarly, coming back at the kind of release measurement stage and then just kind of remaining on that ongoing track. And so we can also notice where trend changes or maybe, you know, a bug or something like that. So we can kind of catch that proactively and bring ideas to the table on how to refine something or how to fix something. Yeah, that's how we try to work, at least. <laughs> that's amazing and super inspiring. Um, I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about that as well later, but a little bit more on sort of the, the broken analytics and your drive for designing the QA process. I mean, it's a really big statement for any company to say that, you know, your data isn't broken in production that much. And it speaks so much to the quality of processes and tools that you've built internally to solve this. Um, so I think most people will be very interested in hearing a little bit more about it. And you talked about the things that you would typically see in your data before you develop the QA processes. And you talked about those are the same things that you are currently catching in your QA process. And you mentioned the discomfort of broken data, um, the busy work, the testing, the edits uh, of the tracking, the back to testing, all those things. Can you talk a little bit more about the discomfort, you know, when you actually manage to not catch things or before you manage to catch everything in QA? You mentioned self-serve analytics tools wouldn't function properly. What else would have been an issue? Like what was slowing down the team enough for you to build these processes? Yeah, I think it's mostly, you know, having cases where something wasn't implemented cleanly enough at launch or maybe not implemented at all in time for launch where, you know, we just try to avoid those things. And it's better to track more than we need <laughs> than not to track something really crucial. So we've just started to be more diligent about it and kind of having a specific set of requirements that can be launch blockers potentially that if something isn't clean enough to kind of go out because it's you know it doesn't make sense to release something if you can't tell how it's performing right so right exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so that's probably you know part of it another part of it is just all of that happened where the team was still in the very early stages. So to be honest with you, there was still a lot about kind of establishing our, you know, value proposition, making sure we get enough resources to grow the team as well. So it was just really important to kind of not drop the balls and uh, get ahead of any potential problems. Uh, another thing is that because of the, we're embedded, right? So there are other data teams in the company. Um, so another thing is also being able to officially collaborate with those teams. We don't want, you know, someone coming to us and saying, hey, this is wrong you're not doing your job right so and similarly you know would probably do the same if another team that touches some other data you know was lagging behind and collecting something right so we also try to be mindful of the dependencies and making sure that you know all the crucial data points that we know other teams might want that everything is um, implemented cleanly with with the release and communicate accordingly yes you're touching on a point that i am very excited to talk about i meant to go in a different direction right now and stop by on the way back. But I think this is a good, really good segue into it right now. So you're sort of touching on what is involved in releasing analytics for every feature release. Who is involved in planning it? Who is involved in implementing it? Who is involved in queuing it, analyzing it, and prioritizing features? Can you talk about what that entire process looks like for you today? 
Yeah, I think it's pretty much 90% owned by my team, by product analysts um, in this case. So product analysts would normally, you know, look at the design, figure out what's happening, look at the KPIs that they've planned as well, um, and add kind of design hypotheses uh, to that, that list. And that's what kind of goes into the design, the uh, instrumentation design that an analyst prepares based on, you know, Balancing the desire to track everything and also knowing what are, you know, what are the KPIs, everything that uh, that needs to be tracked for the key feature KPIs, that's what we call P0. So it's something that would be a launch blocker if it's not clean. And then uh, kind of prioritizing the rest of the uh, desired events in the descending order, you know, something that's for to validate key design hypotheses um, or something that's just nice to have in the spirit of let's just track everything in case we want to revisit it later. So obviously when we can, when we have resources, we try to track every new interaction, you know, everything, every new screen. So analyst prepares that design very detailed. We do it in sort of a spreadsheet sort of fashion where we lay out all the requirements and you know, the priority status there. Then we have a peer review stage where another analyst on the team would be required to kind of have some eyes on it from perspective that, um, you know, another analyst might see something that the first analyst didn't think about based on their previous experiences. So it's always good to have two pairs of eyes or make a suggestion on taxonomy, how to make it more concise, uh, which properties to add, stuff like that. So that's uh, um, the stage that we always go through. And then um, after that, the analyst writes the tickets uh, for developers, um, hands them off. Developers implement the tracking. It goes back to an analyst. The analyst do, does the UAT. And that's basically it. And then the next stage would be for the analyst to build the launch dashboard. And some features, depending on the depth of the feature and whether it's creating you know, a new kind of production data model, not tracking-wise, but more so user experience-wise, we uh, would involve sometimes other data teams if you know we expect that to affect Let's say an example would be uh, we recently launched a new uh, scenic rides and runs. Initially, we only had uh, the time-based ones where you say, you know, it's a 10-minute class, 20-minute class. And then a month ago, we launched distance-based ones where it's not a 10-minute class, but it's a 5K class. So, you know, however long it takes you to complete the 5K, that's your class length. So in that case, you know, hey, this might affect some of the official KPIs or um, the way that... Uh, maybe a content consumption reports look for the content team or the data science team. So in that case, we would also include those teams and, um, you know, the considerations around design and making sure that we capture all, all that they want. And we also get the visibility into how they think about modifying their official reporting. Yeah, so that's a little bit ad hoc. It really depends on the project. For something that's, I don't know, adding a new tool tip, we probably wouldn't involve other teams. But for something big like that, where it's, you know, a new class type, for example, then definitely we would take a more cross-functional approach. Yeah, this is so thorough and a really great description. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, I think it's very actionable for a lot of the people that are listening to this. It definitely sparks up the question about what your org structure looks like, particularly maybe data-wise. And it also sparks the question for me on what does it mean to have a defined P0 feature KPIs and how much do they tie to like your global Peloton KPIs? Do you have those as well? And then always for a KPI, like uh, the KPIs for the feature, who designs that and decides that? I'm guessing the product manager, but would love to hear your thoughts on that. Then definitely another question is like, how do you strike that balance between tracking everything and what makes sense? But let's start with that First question about mm-hmm. the KPIs. Yeah, so with the KPIs, it's a definitely a collaboration between a product manager and an analyst, where a product manager would mostly speak to the very clear definition of the target user persona and the user problem, you know, and kind of a desired outcome of kind of how that feature would play into a specific, either strategic or a business initiative. Um, and then a product analyst would be the person who would actually translate it into metrics, like measurable definition of formulas, if you will. Can you? give us examples of those like what is an example of how a product manager might frame a kpi and then how a product analyst would translate it i know i'm putting you on the spot if you can think of one yeah um i will go pretty general um just not to disclose anything i shouldn't disclose uh, but let's say you know the sessions feature right like we probably don't think that that feature is going to be compelling for everyone because we know that you know some users don't even look at the leaderboard right so a product manager would kind of speak to that like hey we want this feature is for that specific type of user, maybe a user who'd already engaged with something similar or a user who, I don't know, looks at the leaderboard or 
a user who likes to set PRs or what, you know, uh, something like that. And then the product manager would also say a hypothesis that, hey, some features are really more kind of depth focused where we just want the user to kind of engage with more apps maybe or engage with more class types or some features are more kind of consistency focused where, you know, this is not really about engaging with a new thing, but more so continuously engaging with the existing thing at like a higher rate maybe. So, you know, the product manager would help kind of formulate all of that. And the product does would then say like, hey, you know, this is going to go into our, you know, the depth bucket, the depth bucket normally a lot of the metrics are around, you know, average number of X that the user does per month or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, or if it's a, more of a consistency bucket, then there could be some sort of a stickiness metric or some retention metric. Uh, so they would just help formulate that and build in the right audience definition into that metric. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how it goes. But of course, with features, it's a bit more complicated because you know, expecting that every little feature that you launch is going to improve retention or improve conversion. It's a little silly, you know, a product is not like one feature, especially if it's something like really small, doesn't really do anything for the user. In many cases, it's more so how it plays with the rest of the product and kind of how it fits to it, right? So not all the time we would say that, hey, this feature is going to improve retention necessarily, but more so, hey, we want, you know, this is for this target user. We do think that that's something that they're going to do every week or every month. So then the KPIs for that specific feature might be more tactical, more kind of adoption focused, right? Adoption satisfaction focused. While for something bigger, it might be something that really ties a bit more clearly into a specific, you know, business KPI or a specific strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. And you're sort of touching on that rest thing, right? Like the next question, let's strike the balance. Because you also mentioned earlier um, when you were talking about sort of data stories, it's such a great point, you know, that sometimes when you are preparing a feature release or a design and you want to make decisions on like what should be built next, sometimes the right data exists and sometimes it doesn't. And I am personally a big fan of sort of uh, defaulting rather to less is more just because it can become so overwhelming. And if you create too big of a slice of things to track, just random pieces of that slice will get tracked. Sounds like you're solving that, of course, with priorities. This is P0, P1, and all that stuff. But can you talk a little bit more about how you strike that balance, Um, particularly when you said, like, you know, obviously you want to track more and have those insights later rather than not be tracking something crucial. But how do you think about that? Yeah, I'm definitely a fan of tracking everything if possible, because sometimes when you're just launching on a journey of, you know, in measuring a success of something, you can't necessarily think of every little thing that's going to actually matter. So I'm a big fan of, you know, creating that opportunity for analysts or data scientists to have as many data points as they would need. Uh, But, you know, as you mentioned, it's definitely, it creates a risk of, you know, implementing something that's maybe easier to implement, but not super important versus not focusing on something that's really crucial, um, as well as just, you know, the constraints about how much data we can store, you know, how a lot of tracking can also mean longer latency for users if you're, you know, piling up a bunch of SDKs on something. So it's always, you know, that sort of an exercise where uh, prioritization is really important, right? So we do want for all the P0, so stuff that's related to the key KPIs or stuff that's related to the most kind of risky paths where we have a hunch that maybe, hey, this path might be confusing for a user or uh, there could be some more kind of quality component to it that, hey, maybe we think that, you know, there's going to be some performance risk for the feature or whatever, making sure that we that is, you know, flagged as major or P0, P1, and kind of that goes out with the release, no matter what. Uh, but we still strive to implement all the rest of the stuff. It just sometimes doesn't come at the release time, but it kind of comes as fast follows depending on the resources. Um, and then another layer on top of it is also, uh, you know, checking in with engineering on feasibility, you know, of something that is which seems to be a nice to have, but it's actually super convoluted to implement. It's going to take a week to work on for an engineer would probably say like, hey, let's scrap it. It's just not worth it. So yeah, like layering on the feasibility piece to it and, you know, keeping an eye on what kind of the engineering feedback is in terms of the user impact as well. Like if something is going to make it slower, the app slower for a user or something, that will definitely scrap it. 
Yeah, this is really a good point. Um, obviously, yeah, the prioritization. You're you're prioritizing the P0, and then you build hypotheses around what are the risks of the feature. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Like prioritizing those things instead of just tracking everything, prioritize the things that you know are really important to understand. And those typically take some thinking. Mm-hmm. You need to think a little bit to figure these things out. So that's really good. I love that. And then you mentioned uh, you know the things that happen if you track too much. It's a really good point. Like the easy things get implemented, good cost latency for the data in the data for the end user. And then a third thing, I think, is often one sort of side effect of tracking everything, quote unquote. It sort of maybe can slow down data discoverability and data literacy in the company if there is a lot of data that you don't really need. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's something that we're working on and how to make our self-service. Uh, tools a bit clearer for the user. I think that's actually the biggest, you know, pain point for someone who's not on the product team. For example, if they're trying to do some analysis in our self-service tools as to figuring out which events uh, to even use to kind of look at what they're trying to look at. Um, so uh, one thing we kind of try to solve it pretty well with our taxonomy where we actually go a more descriptive route. So we don't do tracking such as button clicked, page viewed, right? That's unhelpful. That's maybe easier <laughs> on like data engineering side, but not on a data consumer side. Um, so we go like fairly descriptive where we try to, you know, have some reference to the feature name or something, you know, that's like fairly straightforward for an end user and they can kind of figure it out. They can like try to search and they would most likely find what they're searching for. And then, you know, adding, you know, more annotations, uh, categorizing events a bit better so users can navigate it a bit more. But I do think we still have, you know, quite a big amount of work to do in that area to improve discoverability and self-service tools. Yeah, this is a really good point. And I love your point about the descriptive event names, uh, using what the intention of the user is rather than using button click. And it's really insightful what you shared, which is that like the button click event might be data easier for the data engineering side, but it's definitely not easier for the data consumer side. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm sure data engineers, you know, they don't like doing unions of tables or something. <laughs> for them, it's easier if it's all, you know, kind of in the same shape and lives in the same table. But unfortunately, that doesn't quite work the same way in self-service and SaaS tools. So. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, you talked about doing unions of tables. The other thing that you have to do, you st- if you have an important user intention, it might not always be represented with the same, you know, generic event, like button yeah, click. Yeah. It could be a different event in another case. So you would still yeah. have to do the union, except you don't know what the event means. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's super insightful. Um, before I dive a little bit into your tool stack, and like you talked about your self-serve analytics tools, um, I know we won't specifically dive maybe into your specific tools, but your sort of type of stack, I think, is really insightful. Before we dive into that, can you share with us what your org structure looks like. Uh, that's something that I am always passionate about hearing from especially exceptional product teams like yours. How does data work with product and engineering? I mean, you've already covered it a little bit. Are they integrated with your product teams? Do they sit in a separate team? Who do they report to, etc.? Yeah. Um, so in general, Peloton, we have sort of a hybrid model where all teams that all kind of departments or verticals, I'd say, who need day-to-day data support, um, they are encouraged to create their own embedded analytics teams, which is the case for us. Our product analytics team sits into a broader product development teams, a team where that also has hardware engineering, software engineering, product design, product management, and we specifically report into the VP of product management. It's mostly, you know, if your team really needs that heavy day-to-day data support that it just makes sense to, you know, create an embedded pod so that you can prioritize your resources independently so that the team can be looped into your roadmap discussion, kind of understand what's going on there. Uh, For product, I feel like it's extremely important, especially as we're trying to kind of be more agile and kind of move faster, experiment more. I think that becomes absolutely crucial. And then we also do have kind of a centralized data platform layer that sits, I think, within the CTO org, so the broader tech org that is responsible for architecture, infrastructure, tools, you know, data warehousing tools, data lakes, and stuff like that. Um, That way, you know, all teams kind of operate within the same architecture, right? But then each team kind of deals with their own 
data that's more relevant for their function. Uh, you know, each team creates the data to some extent that is more relevant for their function and they can be more independent when it comes to resourcing and things like that. Yeah, that's super helpful. That sparks two questions from me. One is how does the product analytics team then work directly with the product individual product teams? Do you have a product analyst allocated uh, to you know different product teams? And my other question would be: Do the different all the different data teams in the company, the data pods within different sectors of the company, do you have any knowledge sharing or sort of a discipline, you know, uh, sessions and things like that? So let's dive into the first one directly: product analysts with product teams. Yeah, I mean, we have only two product teams, my team, product development team, and then the e-com team. So it's really just two product teams. And each of us has a separate product analytics team. Within our team, we have uh, more kind of uh, work streams, which is not like a team, but that's more so an initiative, right? That can, you know, some of them are very short lived. Some of them are really, you know, long term, right? And then analysts, each analyst would have like a couple of those that they support. So they would have, you know, go to product manager, go to development pod, go to design pod. But those aren't kind of like permanent in the org structure. Still all analysts report to me, you know, via their managers and we all report to the, the VP of product management. So it's more kind of a just like an operating model rather than org structure. Nice. And so when those product analysts are working with the product teams, I mean, you've already covered that. They get pulled in when designs are ready to think about the KPIs and all that stuff. Whose initiative is that? Like, does that happen organically because the analysts sit in on a feature kickoff planning meeting? Or are the product managers proactive in pulling them in? Are the product analysts proactive in fetching those information? Sort of which way does this tilt? Right now, it's uh, they just work as a team. They meet weekly, so product analyst knows what's going on at any point in time, and it can be either way. Sometimes the you know product manager would say would suggest something. Sometimes product analyst would suggest that hey, it's time for me to do something. Nice. Yeah. So we try to move more and more in that direction where product analyst kind of owner of their scope, and they can kind of make a call for when it's time for them to work on something. That's amazing. That sounds like there is a really strong mutual respect between these two groups, between the product managers and the product analysts. Yeah, yeah. We try to kind of step away from a service center notion where, you know, everyone needs to submit the ticket, but more so kind of working in a fully embedded way where product analysts are really like assuming some sort of a leadership role within kind of the scope of work that they're supporting. Yeah, exactly. And that brings me to sort of a follow-up question of that, because you mentioned earlier um, when you were talking about that, you know, your journey for building up the product analytics division and what really helped there was that they were already data-driven. And that was one of the things that helped drive your authority to not just have the product analyst teams just be the team that supports the tooling, but also are proactive. Um, can you talk a little bit about those two options? Like what, what was the dystopian world? <laughs> yeah, I think the alternative is that sort of a service center situation where, you know, there is a Jira board and the product manager, when they need something, they would submit a ticket um, and an analyst would work on it. Um, I find that it makes sense for some smaller things that maybe don't, that is like, very specific numbers that need to be pulled or very specific chart that needs to be built. But I feel like that didn't give the space for analysts to kind of explore the data. I feel like the most useful insights actually come from that generative research as opposed to just checking off boxes and building some dashboard, right? So I wanted to empower my analysts uh, with providing everyone the capacity and kind of the incentive to uh, be proactive about uh, in their thinking, you know, um, in their assessment of the ecosystem, how the user experience works, what the holistic platform experience is depending on their focus area. Um, and uh, with that, they also need to build the subject matter expertise so that they're not just thinking like narrowly about what they see in the data, but they also ingest the context, the business context, they ingest the, uh, the qualitative research. And really the only way to do it is for them to be, you know, continuously embedded on with a group of people that are constantly thinking about, you know, a specific initiative or user experience area. And that gives an analyst kind of a bit more space to uh, generate ideas, a bit more 
ownership that is also important depending on the person some people are motivated by it some not but i think you know for those who are it's really important to give that option as well and then also let them you know sometimes just sit in meetings where they would build some subject matter expertise because relying on product managers to always make a call to like invite the product analyst somewhere or to always like know how to formulate the requirements. It produces results, but I feel like they're still suboptimal. And we've definitely found that, you know, depending on the product manager, depending on the situation, sometimes we would get, you know, a ticket before kind of the embedded times, we would get the ticket that would say, hey, I need these 20 things. And we're like, why? (laughs) Are you sure that this very specific metric is really the right metric for this? Can we take a step back and kind of talk about what is the actual question you're trying to answer? And then let me, as a person who had been looking at that data, figure out what is the right metric. So, you know, it's like figuring that gentle balance between not necessarily saying that, hey, I know everything, I know better than you, but more so like working collaboratively of like, hey, let me try to just use my past experience and you teach me about the problem, right? And about your thinking. And I will use my data specific expertise to figure out, you know, what's the best way to answer it. Because, you know, as a product manager, you probably don't have all that background and, you know, the past data, the past trends. So sometimes you might just not think about a specific thing that would be helpful or a specific way to answer that question. So, yeah, I just find that that works a bit more efficiently. Um, There's definitely still some kinks to, you know, figure out just more from a process perspective, because obviously going to too many meetings for analysts is also not good because we need a lot of focus time. Uh, So figuring out how to kind of balance um, you know, have, being in the important meetings and, you know, reading important documents, but also not being overloaded with just a lot of meetings for the sake of attending everything that happens in their work stream. So something's still figuring out. <laughs> this is a really good insight. The gentle balance between you teach me about the problem and I will help you with my past data expertise. I really love that. That's a good framing. How do you find the right people for that? How do you hire for these roles? Yeah, definitely. Um, That's a really good question. I think um, we try to balance in our hiring process, assessing both, you know, hard technical skills, because obviously it's important to be able to code, you know, in the statistics really well, making sure you can, you know, define the right metrics, you know, how to assess experiments and have like really good baseline, but something that we are really trying to look at during the hiring process is the problem formulation and synthesis, um, kind of those two buckets of technical skills that are a bit less clear cut as just, hey, your query is right or your query is wrong. But uh, one thing that we find useful is uh, doing a take-home assignment, which, you know, maybe I would love to figure out a better way uh, because I know that take-homes can be annoying. They take up your time if you have kids or something. It's so hard to find it. So there's definitely, you know, I'm very, very well aware of all the implications of it. But trying to give folks some space Instead of, you know, grilling them throughout multiple, you know, code pairs and whiteboarding sessions, we try to give some space to kind of break down a problem. You know, we would give them a prompt to the data set around some, you know, hypothetical feature launch and have them think through uh, kind of how would they think about defining KPIs? How would they think about the user experience, which is super important product as well? You can't just treat numbers as data points, right? You have to, you know, always when you're suggesting implementing something, you have to think about how that would affect the user experience. Um, and then also being able to like put that together in a story that you would present to a product manager, you know, because one thing is presenting to your analytics peers where you can present pieces of code and this and that, and like everyone's going to understand you, but, you know, you would not be providing the full value as a product analyst if you couldn't synthesize it in a way that a non-technical person would be able to kind of like understand the whole story from the problem to the uh, kind of your recommendations, I guess, or thought starters. So that's how we try to, you know, approach that and we also do some behavioral stuff around just being able to collaborate effectively with your teammates and with our product managers. But I find that kind of the take home really helps to, you know, distinguish someone who would be a good fit or someone who is a bit more maybe focused on statistics or mm-hmm. coding. It's totally fine. You know, different people are motivated differently, you know, and for someone, a better 
place would be where we really get to go, you know, very narrow on the specific technical skills or really deep, I guess I should say, on the specific technical skills. And as a product analyst, I find that you have to be a bit more T-shaped. So you need to know a lot of approaches for, you know, simple dashboarding to some ML models, to some statistical approaches and be able to kind of assess for a specific problem what to pick based on kind of the outcome that you're trying to provide and be able to kind of absorb the business and the user experience context. Amazing. It sounds like we probably will need a follow-up episode on just the hiring <laughs> because this is so interesting because it's such a new role. That there, like there is the product analyst role and all of a sudden now, I feel like just in this year, we have this role called analytics engineer, which is also now sort of trending. Um, and I'm hiring. I'm hiring. Please apply. <laughs> I have a really good manager level position for analytics engineering. It's open. Please, everyone apply. <laughs> I will recommend to anyone listening that um, you should work with Elena. It's been inspiring uh, to talk to her throughout everything that you're doing, Elena, really. So it's a huge opportunity. Anyone who's looking to uh, become an analytics engineer, even if I would say, even if you haven't been an analytics engineer before, because it's just such a new role, you probably have not had that title before. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely not about the title, but more about kind of the combination of skills. Yeah, exactly. So this is super helpful. And I I know it's going to be super helpful for anyone who's listening. So go ahead, check out the Peloton job description for analytics engineer um, and join this amazing person on a journey for better product analytics. (laughs) We are running out of time here, but I definitely do want to hear you talk a little bit about your types of tools that you have in your data stack. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we do have kind of a sort of a CDP or what have you, the data collection platform, um, a third party that, you know, enables the event tracking in the first place. And that tool funnels that data both into our product analytics SaaS tool, as well as other destinations such as, you know, data warehouse, data lakes and things like that. So we do rely on the product analytics SaaS vendor for the trend assessments and feature launches, some experiment assessments that are pretty straightforward, you know, and can be out of box, you know, T-test, Z-test or whatever. So that definitely saves us a ton of time and, you know, helps us pretty easily track feature adoption, easily share those numbers with cross-functional stakeholders and empower them to also do their own, um, you know, trend analysis. Um, And then the data goes into data warehouse and data lake. So we use that both for official reporting, given that, you know, we'd want raw data sometimes just not, you know, clean enough. So there's definitely some uh, additional scripts that are required to kind of bring the data into official reporting shape. And we also use that raw data from data lake to do a deep dive analysis where, you know, a SaaS tool might not just be powerful enough. So for that, we just use uh, Jupyter Notebooks. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty vanilla there. Yeah, Jupyter Notebooks. So do, you know, various types of deep dives, some MLs, some of the stuff a bit more kind of exploratory. We do have a an inference statistician on the team who's a PhD um, in economics, and he does a bit more you know, methodology refinements and, you know, ingesting a lot of the research literature and definitely relies a lot on that kind of ability to uh, do more complex analysis that would not be available out of box anywhere. Yeah, exactly. So I think I want to wrap this up by some knowledge sharing. What would you say is the first thing teams should do to get their analytics right Oh man, <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to you know just say one thing. I think establishing a culture around kind of key data capture is really important. Uh, but you know that's not a one thing, right? There are multiple things involved uh, to get that right. Um, so I would say it is important to have someone on the team who would be able to own that and champion that might not be a traditional maybe data scientist in a sense, but it could be someone who has a bit of a, you know, functional experience, maybe in product or in a you know, specific business area that's relevant, uh, but also had a pretty good hands-on experience in analytics. So I would say find a champion, you know, one of the first tasks for them would be to kind of get that data capture part right, because without having it, it's just going to be ad hoc's ad hoc here, ad hoc there, and it's just going to become, yeah, it's better to get ahead of it when you're still small and kind of have some sort of principles established around it. And once, you know, there is some clean data capture happening, figure out, you know, the main things that you need to be measuring uh, based on, 
your business model, your product model. There are a lot of, you know, books, really good books around it, such as Lean Analytics, for example, uh, a ton of materials on Reforge, a ton of materials on Amplitude. Amplitude has really some really good handbooks um, that are available to everyone to have to be their client. So, you know, that would help you to kind of refine your strategy around the main metrics that you should be capturing and establishing all of that in a good, concise way and start looking at it weekly uh, to see the movements. And I think all of that combined would kind of give folks enough inspiration and understanding around, you know, the importance of incorporating the data and the decision-making. I love that. Thanks for sharing. Any one thing that you wish more people knew about data and product? Yeah, I think part of it, I kind of touched upon it a little bit, is that there is a lot of kind of desire to say, hey, this one specific thing that I'm launching is going to increase the revenue or something. But I think there's more to it than that. Uh, There's more about figuring out how things work in combination and making sure that you understand, you know, the user personas that you have on your platform and figuring out kind of the why behind the things that you're building, you know, and it's not always going to be that it's going to increase revenue or it's going to reduce churn or something. So, you know, figuring out that chain of events that leads to, you know, user engagement, user satisfaction, and that, you know, leads to better engaged retention, that leads to better, uh, you know, paid retention. Similarly, for e-com flows, there could be kind of a similar thing that, you know, drives repeat purchases or intent that it's not necessarily about, you know, being able to affect the revenue directly right away with like each and every release. I love it. Thank you so much, Elena, for sharing all of this amazing knowledge with us um, on the right track. I look forward to one day having you on Chapter 2. But for now, (laughs) thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was definitely super fun to geek out about product analytics things. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Right Track. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Keep the conversation going with us in the Right Track community. Join us on therighttrack.avo.app. You can learn more about Avo at avo.app. And please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter via AvoHQ.